Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Like we've said a lot of times, a rabbi is not supposed to have a favorite Torah portion. However, rabbis have favorite Torah portions. So um, this is one of my favorites. We've been talking about it for weeks now um, because we knew it was coming uh, on the one hand and because we've raised issues about uh, the whole idea of a physical uh, kind of representation of our relationship to the sacred. So we have started, we've been for the last many weeks, we've been in the description of the uh, Mishkan of the tabernacle, uh, the traveling sanctuary that the Israelites uh, were commanded to make in the desert. Uh, and we had a whole conversation about why. Why do they need a sanctuary? Why does God need a sanctuary? Why would God, uh, our character God, command this? Uh, we had a whole conversation about that. So feel free to listen back several podcasts uh, through now um, to kind of get the fullness of that conversation. That conversation led us, even several weeks ago, to a conversation about this week's Parsha and the uh, events of this week's Parsha, which, of course, uh, contains the Egel Hazahav, the story of the golden calf. And the... The connection, right, uh, we're going to look at a little more explicitly uh, at the end of our shiur, the end of our lesson together and our learning time. Uh, but there, there is absolutely a connection between um, God's understanding that the people need a physical representation of their relationship to the divine and this week's episode where we get the people's own expression of their need for a physical representation to their relationship with, we're not sure who. So, dun, 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 dun. so we are going to explore that angle. You know, we've learned this many times before, um, but the angle I'd like to, to look at this morning um, is a psycho... I know. Look at Mark. He's so excited. Um, Rick's jumping out of his chair over there. Um, so what is it called? If you're a, what is that model? A Freudian model is what? A psychodynamic model. So that's what we're going to look at um, this morning. Uh, Aviva Zornberg has a chapter in her book on the book of Exodus that we could spend an entire learning season just on the chapter about this Parsha. She is so insightful and so brilliant um it, it's really quite something like this this week i was really again completely taken with uh with her scholarship and she's she's un, she's not gotten the fame and attention she deserves she's one of the greatest of of our time um and so um, we're going to look at the text and then i want to set us up to talk from a psychodynamic uh, perspective about what is happening here because it is in, it is incredibly rich and incredibly complicated um, and there's lots of ways to go at it. All right, so we are in chapter 31 of the book of Exodus. We are at the last verse of chapter 31, verse 18. So if you want to go on to 32, if you're in a book that jumps over chapters, whatever you want to do. All right, so we're starting at the end of 31. I hear you. For me too, with glasses on. All right. So, 
Moshe has just gotten the commandment of Shabbat. You all know all of this because this is part of Kiddush. Or, or actually, no, it's part of our, uh, part of our liturgy. So, uh, right after the commandment to keep Shabbats, upon finishing speaking with him on Mount Sinai, God gives Moshe the two tablets, ha'edut, of witness, stone tablets inscribed be'etzpa Elohim, with the finger of God. So the rabbis ask, what does that mean? And they say it was a miracle that God carved the tablets all the way through. So the, the writing goes all the way through the stone, but you can read it on both sides. That's the miracle. It goes all the way through, but if you turn them around, it reads correctly. you got to love the rabbis that they're asking, what does that mean? Okay. Now you know. Vayar ha'am kivoshesh Moshe. So pay attention to the language here. The people see. So this whole business opens with the people seeing, and then we're going to see that it closes with Moses asking to see God's kavod. Right? So both it bookends with seeing, um, and the seeing here is going to lead to something icky. The seeing at the end leads to a deeper understanding by Moshe of the nature of divinity. So the, what do the people see? The people see ki boshesh Moshe, that Moshe delays. Moshe delays la redet min hahar from coming down the mountain. Vayikahel ha'am. This is from the word kahal. Kahal is in the name of your synagogue. Kehilat Yisrael is this synagogue's name. Kehilat Yisrael, the kahal of Israel, the kahal is the right the community, the congregation. This is the verbal form. And so the nation pulls itself together. Al Aharon against Aaron. And they say to him, Kum, get up. Make for us Elohim. I'm not going to translate it. Asher Yelchu Lifanenu that they should walk before us. Because, why do we need an Elohim made for us to walk before us? Because literally, because this Moses, the guy, the Ish, the guy that brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know Mehayalo. What's happened to him? That's why we need an Elohim. So who is the calf representing? We are not sure. Vayomer alehim Aharon, and Aaron says to them, okay, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So who's he speaking to? The men. Take the jewelry off your women and your children. You run the house. You take the gold. You bring it to me. This is the men. Midrash says the women did not participate. That their jewelry was used, right, without their consent, essentially. And so they did. They took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Where did this gold come from? They were slaves. Mm -hmm. 
They borrowed it from the Egyptians when they left Egypt. This he took from them and cast in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, what did they say? It's important to pay attention to what they say. Ela Elohecha Yisrael. This is your El, Yisrael. Asher He'elucha Me'eretz Mitraim. That brought you up from the land of Egypt. So, just now we got this guy Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now they're saying, this is your L that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Okay. Vayar Aharon, and so Aharon sees what's going on and somehow understands that he's to build a Mizbeach, he's to build an altar in front of it, right? And what and Aaron announces, Chag there will be a festival to Yudhe tomorrow. Early the next day, so they get up early to do this. They are rushing to do this. The people offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink, which is the proper behavior when you bring a sacrifice. You sit and you eat it and you share it. And then they rose to do what in Hebrew? In Hebrew... What did they rise to do? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Bert, you want to say more? You're making noises over there. <laughs> do you want to say more? Let's achek. They get up. Let's achek. To do what? To play. Hmm. Really? Let's achek does not mean to dance. Lear code is to dance. To play. Right, Dana Fine? Israeli folk dancer, you? To meditate, oh my God, says Jewish Life and Practice Chair on the Board of Trustees. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So, let's talk We've talked about this a lot. What Ishmael and his brother were doing. This is what Ishmael did to Yaakov that makes Sarah disinherit Ishmael. He was mitzacheking with Yaakov. And how does somebody find out that Rivka and Yitzchak are not a brother and sister? They were mitzacheking on the roof. <laughs> what? Because I know Torah. What do you mean, how do I know? Because <laughs> I know Torah. That is where these wor- this word is used, both what Yishmael does to Yaakov and what Rebecca and Isaac are doing so that someone finds out they are not brother and sister because they are busy mitzacheking on the roof. Now, do you think that means dance? It can lead to dancing, right? Maybe slow dancing, right? What is it called? Horizontal dancing, right? Like, so this is, this has sometimes sexual connotations. So there's an orgy? I mean, seriously. See what happened? After last week, you, just after, no, you, oh, I'm sorry. 
What? No, I'm saying you're saying there was an orgy? That's what I'm saying. I'm suggesting that one of the ways pagan worship happens is you want to do here on earth as ritual what you want to have happen in the upper realms. If what you're interested in is fertility. See, that's why I come of this the, class. <laughs> that's right, why you're here. <laughs> if what you're interested in is fertility of the crops and the flocks and your own household, if you want to invoke fertility up there, what do you need to do down here? Letachik. Yes, Linda? You're going to say something? No, can't they mitzachik without being interested in the fertility part? <laughs> yes. So, yes, they can definitely do mitzachik stuff without being interested in fertility. However, when we look at why that becomes a sacred ritual, why is this an expression of worshiping? Because it's related to fertility. Now, do they do it because they just like it? Obviously, um, they don't hate it, but um, but it originates right as a way to mirror, have mirrored in the heavens what you want to have happen up there, you have to do down here. Okay? Um, even the rabbis have some of this language with, if we want the Kadosh Baruch Hu to unite with the Shekhinah, husband and wife must do what? Arab Shabbat. Okay. I'm glad we are clear. Okay. So, um, let's see. So they are, they are eating, they are drinking, they are mitzacheking. However we want to understand that, right? It's not just dance. It could be the kind of dance we think about when we think about, right, erotic expression, but this is definitely a ritualized kind of uh, activity. It is not disco dancing. By Deber Adonai Moshe, and God says to Moshe, Lech, go. Red, get down. Ki shichet amcha, Right? Here we go for the third time. Get down, because your people, who you brought up out of the land of Egypt, not that thing they're dancing in front of, you brought them out. Notably, who does God not say brought them out? God. <laughs> right? This people you brought up from there, your child have acted basely. Saru Maher. Moshe Boshesh. Moshe delays. What happens with the people? Saru Maher. They turned quickly. Is what God is saying. Saru Maher. Moshe slow. The people are quick to turn. Mean haderech asher tzivitam, from the way that I commanded them, right? They have made for them egel masecha, a calf that is overlaid with gold. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I've commanded them. They've made themselves a molten calf and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it. So they have yishtachavulo, they bowed to it, v'yizbuchulo, and they've sacrificed to it. And they said... This is the God, Yisrael, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. That's time number four. This is a sensitive subject. This is the fourth time Torah is reiterating who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This seems to be part of the fixation of the story. This is where Winnicott comes in. The transitional object 
is Moshe. And we'll say more about that in a minute. And God says further, Ra'iti am hazeh, I have seen this people. Am kshe'oref hu. It is stiff-necked. This seems to be really bad. We joke about it, that we're stiff-necked people. We know this about ourselves. This is a story we tell about ourselves, but it is it is not a light thing because what happens next? God, for the first time, says, I've seen them. This is a stiff-necked people. Let my anger blaze forth against them that I may destroy them and make of you, Moshe, a great nation. Stiff-neckedness is so bad that God is ready to destroy the nation completely. All of them. All of them. Every last one of them down to babies. That's how bad this is. So we tend to think we understand what that means. Am kshe'oref, hard of neck. But think about what is it that that means that makes it so bad that Yodhe is ready to wipe out the people. What my question was about what was the Hebrew, is the Hebrew actually stiff neck? Because what does that mean? Is it not to be able to look left or right or up or down? Just fixate on one thing? Kashet is hard of, you know, mm-hmm. neck. So is that what it is? <laughs> okay. You know, just we're gonna single have, focus? We're going to talk about it. Ve'atta. And now, atta with an ayin, not an aleph. Ve'atta, and now, right? Let me be, right? Let me destroy them, and I'll make of you a great nation. And what does Moshe say? What does Moshe do? Moshe does his job. Vayechal Moshe et pnei Adonai Elohav. So Moshe implores the face of Yehovah, his God, his God. Vayomer and says. Lama Adonai Yechere Apchabeamcha. Why, Yodhevavhe, would you, or, or don't, like, don't let your nostrils flare at your people. When God's nostrils flare, terrible things happen. Um, Asher Hotseta Me'eret Mitraim. That you brought up from the land of Egypt. Time number five. We're getting a reference to this. In this case, Moshe is making it very clear. I didn't bring this people up from Egypt. You did. It's your fault. It's your child who's doing all of this misbehaving. You bear responsibility in this more than me. Why should Egypt say in wickedness, in ra'ah, in evil, he took them out, meaning God. Laharogotam, to kill them, the harim, in the mountains, and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Shuv mecharon apcha, turn. Remember the people have turned? Moshe says, return from. Turn from your anger. Vihinachem al amcha and renounce the ra'ah, the evil that you're planning to do to your people. Remember your servants, zachor. Remember, 
Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yisrael, your servants, that you swore to them by your own self, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your offspring this whole land of which I spoke to possess forever, like as their inheritance, as their forever inheritance. And God renounces the punishment God had planned for God's people. Thereupon Moshe turns and goes down from the mountain bearing the two tablets of witness inscribed on both their surfaces. This is what the rabbis were referencing. They were inscribed on the one side and on the other. The tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing incised upon the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people, because he's up part way up the mountain with Moshe, in its boisterousness, um, he said to Moshe, the sound of war is in the camp. Like, what happened? Somebody attacked our camp? But he answered, it is not the sound of the tune of triumph or the sound of the tune of defeat. It is the sound of song I hear. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the cabin, the dancing, he became enraged. And he hurled the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it. He ground it to powder and strewed it upon the water and so made the Israelites drink it. How did Moses then have the power to make them drink it? I mean, he's been rejected. by. The oh, people. no, 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 no. He's not been rejected. He hasn't come down. He's he just came down. He just came down and sees what's going on, and he takes the tablets, and he smashes them, and then he orders that the calf be ground and burned, and he makes he's the leader. He makes them drink it. He's still the leader. He's still the leader. Absolutely. Absolutely. allegiance to the golden calf was not much at all. All right, so let's – we have to unpack the golden calf. Then you you can answer that question, George. You can answer your question once we unpack the golden calf. Is there allegiance to the golden calf that fleeting? So this is where Zornberg pulls on the work of Winnicott. This is where Zornberg pulls on the whole idea of the infant separating from mother, not by the infant's choice. Mother separates from baby to go do the laundry or to go, you know, play pickleball. Like whatever it is mom is doing leaves the infant. The infant has to have the ability to hold mother in its mind. And when it, and Mark, you're going to, and Rick and George, you have to correct me when I mangle this. Baby has to be able to hold mother in mind in order to like hang on to reality and not come apart. And when baby crosses the threshold of the time that it is able to hold the idea of mother with mother being gone, baby loses its mind and needs a transitional object or another, you know, trusted caregiver to be able to cope with the absence of mother. Enough of these positive transitional experiences, as I understand it, enough of those creates a healthy child who is able to separate from mother and form other loving 
bonds and to trust that that's possible outside of mother. This is what Zornberg points to when she talks about the episode of the golden calf. Okay. So, um, Mark, can you define, would you give Mark the mic? Can you define? So first of all, it's an erotic connection. So this is talked about as erotic in the Freudian literature, as I understand it. Um, and so th- th- that's very important. That's why Mitzacheking is here. It's, it's an erotic fixation. It's an erotic connection, not the way we think of it, right? It does not mean sex. It's something much deeper and bigger than that. It is fundamental. Can you explain just quickly, Mark, the idea of fetishism? Where does a fetish come in? Well, a fetish is actually a, a pathological development that come that really uh, comes in uh, much later in, in development, but it has a kind of early analog in the transitional object, in that a fetish also is an object that serves as a kind of symbol or stand-in for for another object, generally for for the penis. And so why is it pathological? It's pathological because, um, well, the whole, the whole notion of pathology is very problematic in psychology. So um, uh, the, the, no, the notion of pathological is really a psychiatric notion and not uh, really a psychoanalytic notion. And so why is it, why is a fetish not the healthy, best, mature, way to relate to a transitional object because it, it is it does not lead to uh, a, an adequate discharge of the impulse of the underlying drive okay and it does not lead to a discharge of the underlying drive this is zornberg's case she's making the case that israel has fetishized moshe They are pathologically engaged in fetishizing Moshe. So when Moshe Voshesh, when Moshe isn't there for them to project their stuff onto, that underlying impulse to be in union with, then they immediately need another object. And here comes the calf. The calf is a stand-in for Moshe. Not God, according to Zornberg's interpretation. So let's look at and and Mark. I brought you Zornberg um, because it's just delicious. May I, may it's I say just, just one other thing about, delicious. about that. Huh? May I say one other thing? Yes, about please. That or it's just not a good time. Do you want to go on? Where, where? What are? Yeah. Are we in this topic of? Yes. There. There's another whole aspect of this that um, oh. Winnicott assumes, but doesn't really focus on. And that is the uh, the notion of the fusion of drives that uh, is the what the fusion of drives fusion of, the, of drives part of yeah part of the internalization um, and the the, uh, the transitional object is a stage uh, in internalization the internalization um, is strongly affected by whether or not the the non-gratifying mother, the mother who's absent or not uh, responsive to the infant, the bad object, is uh, if, if the infant is able ultimately to fuse 
the image of the bad mother and the good mother and see that as a, see mother as a single object. As okay. A unit, so holding object. both good and bad. Right. So this is right in line with why the calf incident is so bad. It is sh- not so bad. It's because it's showing a pathological response. There's a diffusion. The people are experiencing a pathological relationship. They cannot get it. They can't transition in a healthy way to hold both the good and the bad together. So they, right, Moshe's missing. They immediately need a fetish that is the calf, and they do all their junk onto that in a way that is not going to help them, right, integrate. Uh, Amy, or discharge that, whatever. Yes. Amy, uh, I, I agree with everything that Mark said, but on a personal note for Winnicott that's interesting, that probably influenced him becoming a pediatrician and becoming a psychoanalyst, is that his early development was interfered with because his mother was very, very depressed. His father was absent, and he had to take care of his mother. So his true self was delayed. And that absolutely influenced his writing and his understanding of object relations. And that's why he sort of lobbed on to uh, Melanie Klein. There you go. So, that's, and to that point, we talked last year, remember, I brought you Alana Pardes' work, the, an autobiography of Israel, where she sees Israel as a character, not Jacob, the nation, that all of these stories is the life story and development of a character. They've just been born. Where did they get born? The birth waters. What are the birth waters? The parting of the sea. They're born. These are newborn. This is an infant. This is the nation of Israel as an infant. So it's not a stretch where Zornberg goes. What Rick just talked about was the absent mother, Mark mentioned it, the absent mother. We have here a calf. Who's in charge of taking care of a calf? The mother. A suckling calf, what's missing? The mother. This is not Ra, says Ilana Pardes. The calf is Israel's own representation of its abandonment by the mother God, by Isis, who was represented as a cow in Egypt. They are an infant suckling calf. This is not a bull. This is a baby cow. What does a baby cow want? Mama. They are yearning for mom, Isis, who has been taken from them. She has disappeared. This causes a deep psychological trauma, and it is a pathological people that are responding to this trauma. The people's view of Moses, says Aviva Zornberg, is most lucidly limbed in their words of abandonment. This man, Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, the Meshechochma, reads powerfully, uh, a commentator, reads powerfully, for them, Moses has become the source of supernatural power. It is he who has brought them up from the land of Egypt. Just here at root is their pathology. As God diagnoses it to Moshe a few verses later, go down 
for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Implicitly, God tells Moses the people's corruption consists in their projecting all power onto you. In other words, Meshechochma implies idolatry has begun long before the golden calf emerges from the fire. Moshe himself has become a fetish in the sensibility of the people. In Winnicott's terms, a madness of discontinuity has afflicted them in which they are unable to use Moses in his absence, unable to sustain the personal psychic reality of his image. Which, And we kind of unpacked that already. <clears throat> on, on reading of the Golden Calf narrative, a second point she makes, I mean, I'm telling you her chapter is like huge. In a, it in effect emphasizes the betrayal of a revelation, the inexplicable lightness with which erotic objects are exchanged, right? They easily exchanged Moshe for the calf. If it's a fetish, she seems to be suggesting, I think, if it's a fetish, by definition, it is easily substitutable as an erotic uh, object. While the other, so that's one, that's one part of what's going on, is how quickly they were able to switch Moshe for the calf. While the other way of reading the story focuses on the paralysis, to your point, that preserves the deadened forms of the past and of the self. So both a quickness to flip fetishes and an intransigence about leaving the deadened past that isn't going to serve them, right? To to Laura's earlier point, she's talking about a paralysis. She's talking about a stiff neck. This is what Zornberg is unpacking, saying they, they, they are stuck, essentially, in a dead past that doesn't serve. In this second reading, listen carefully to this. I just, I love this so much. In this second reading, the revelation on Sinai represents an impious affront to the received ideas of the Egyptian past. People, she goes on in her chapter, like I, I'm going to have to read it seven more times to really get it because it's really spoke deeply to me. She talks about the challenge to growth. That Emerson, she quotes Emerson, that, that ourselves are this ever-widening circle. If we grow, there are always challenges wanting to hem in that circle from expanding more. If we can stay open, if we can let go of our need to connect to a past identity of self, if we can tolerate that discontinuity, we can grow. People who stop growing are people who cannot tolerate disconnecting from a previous identity. Now think about that. So what is happening, she's saying, is that the people are religious and loyal. Sinai, as a revelation, is an affront to their religiosity that is tied to Egypt, to slavery, to disempowerment. They are loyal 
to Egyptian religious ideals. And so Sinai is an affront to that. It's heresy. The golden calf is a reaffirmation of the already known, a regression from the disruptive vocabulary of Sinai. Sinai is asking them to grow. That means it is by definition disruptive of who they have been in the past. In this narrative, a lightness, a capacity for transition and transformation is tragically missing from the spiritual repertoire of the people. In God's first accusation of the people, then, nuances of both charges appear. On the one hand, the people have changed too quickly. We read, Sarmaher, they turned quickly from the erotic commitments of Sinai. That's true. They made an erotic commitment at Sinai. And boom, just that fast, they've turned from it. That's true. And on the other hand, they are stiff-necked, sclerotic, invested in the outward forms of the past. (laughs) Can you drop the mic, please? Yes. Right? Boom. Like, come on, people. Like, we could spend three hours unpacking that. Um, But I think what I love about Zornberg is how seriously she takes the text and what's happening. She takes this very seriously, that it is an incredibly deep trauma and and struggle to, you know, to grow and hang on at the same time. And all I can think of is, well, duh, like that's, isn't that who we are? When we're challenged to grow, isn't that really like terrifying to let go of how we've always done it, how we've always thought about it, the story we've always told ourselves about it? I am betraying that if I change my mind. I'm betraying, Amy, you knew it wouldn't work out. It never does, right? I'm betraying that if I move into trust and expansion and compassion and centeredness, right? I betray that connection because it is disruptive. And I think that is just super insightful. And it allows us, I, I think, to have a lot of Rahmanis for the Israelites. Laura? Do you think she's saying where she says a lightness, a capacity for transition and transformation is missing? Is she saying that um, there, like, there could be some transitional positive transitional object that could help with this I think. movement from before to yeah. the future? I think she's. they are missing some kind of ability to move in a positive direction. They just they don't have it. They're stuck. Yeah, the calf becomes a way to identify with their past identity, which is keeping them stuck. But yes, there could be. Maybe even fetishizing Moshe wasn't so bad. I, I don't know. Or but maybe that it's something, maybe it's something that's supposed to be internal to them that they're missing, not some external thing that would help. Yeah, them. maybe. Dave? Isn't the Mishkan a, an appropriate? Ah, okay, hang on, hang on. We're going to go there. That's Shefa's, that's Shefa's first text that I'm bringing, so I, I want to close there. I want to definitely close there with the Mishkan. Um, okay, because I think it's not an accident that we get the instructions then we get this incident, then Vayakel Pikude is the building of the Mishkan. I think 100%, you're exactly right, David. I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt what you were saying, but um, 
you know, I think something that would be very clarifying is to understand something else about Winnicott. Uh, we're talking about this in terms of transitional objects, but his notion of dependency, and uh, which uh, really grows out of uh, out of Freud very clearly, but his notion of dependency, um, I think, and the the growth of uh, dependency, and the and the fetish, the, the use of def- of uh, of uh, defenses in a very primitive way. Not, not, uh, not the more mature defenses that don't disturb a person's relationship to the object world. Like healthy boundaries, let's say. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, this whole movement, well, I'm trying to figure out how to say it simply. Um, this, this whole movement, uh, in the infant, for example, and I think it's, it's paralleled very clearly here, uh, moves from a, a kind of symbiosis, a kind of uh, a, union, a kind of large-scale failure—not a total failure, but a large-scale failure—of the ability of the infant to differentiate itself from mother, and that as that differentiation occurs through, uh, and the the bad object is the uh, is what enables that differentiation to start to occur, as well as just maturation of the infant. Mm-hmm. But as that occurs um, is when uh, all of these uh, uses of the transitional objects become very important. Right. And uh, you were talking about fetishism. Uh, basically what happens uh, in, the pro- in the process of developing a fetish is that um, transitional object is not allowed its function. In essence, it's like taking a baby's blanket away to too soon. Right. The baby has uh, has no capacity to make the transition from total dependency to uh, a kind of uh, modulated dependency to interdependence, and has to fetishize or defend against the original object. Right. In that way. Right. And, I th- and, and so, right, clearly, clearly, that's what's going on here. All right. Wax, who looks at everything through a Musar lens, through a Hasidic tradition of right of, of spiritual qualities. God seems intent on destroying the Israelites, not for idolatry, but rather for stiff-neckedness. She also quotes Zornberg. Aviva Zornberg suggests that rather than reflecting infidelity, the idea of stiff-neckedness represents the Israelites' absolute and perverse fidelity to their pagan ways in Egypt. Stiff-neckedness means that they were loyal to a fault. This is effectively the opposite of fickleness and inconstancy. Rather than straying quickly, which we've seen in the Hebrew, from God's way after Sinai, they had actually never accepted God's way at all. So the Alter Rebbe of Chelm, Rabbi Simcha Zissel Ziv, says on our verse, In this concluding verse, we see that the main fault of the people was that they were stiff-necked. That is, they lacked the flexibility to admit that they made a mistake. When someone is flexible, even if they make many mistakes, they will regret them and they will change. But if a person is inflexible when they make a mistake, they will not repent and improve. So, Laura, another interpretation of stiff-neckedness um, is that mistakes, even a mistake as severe as idolatry, is forgivable 
says the Alter Rebbe of Chelm, if someone does true tshuva, if one does true tshuva, does repentance, then even idolatry is forgivable. The charge of stiff-neckedness and the lack of flexibility was therefore indeed a far worse spiritual transgression than that of idolatry. The true spiritual life requires an openness to change for the better. And she's going to argue, this is where our spiritual practice has to kick in. This is why the Mishkan comes next. Because that is the antidote to what's happening here, is that spiritual practice is what gives offers us an opportunity to reflect on how free we are to explore the places of intractable stuckness and to honor our freedom of choice as a divinely given offering. What is the opposite of stiff-neckedness? In some instances, it might be flexibility. But here it seems that its partner can rightly be tshuva. If stiff-neckedness is the inability to turn, as you suggested, Laura, <coughs> then the desire and willingness to make tshuva, literally, what does tshuva mean? <coughs> to return, shuv, to return, literally to turn, and it's co- is its complementary and mitigating midah, uh, may we never be so stiff-necked that we can't turn. Yes? I mean, looking at it in the way you've laid this out, it, it almost seems like the transgression, I always thought of the transgression as oh, those children of Israel, but it, this seems like a necessary step to me that it couldn't go any other way. Like it, this is a like shock therapy or something, you know, like they, where they they uh, they transgress and then they, they almost need to have it laid out before them in this way. It, it seems like a completely unavoidable step. Um, and the end of our story that we didn't read is that a plague comes yeah. and they slaughter, the Levites slaughter everybody who was involved. So I think, yes, it's a necessary step that they have to kill off the part of themselves. The, if we take this seriously as the infant, right, this is the infant Israel, the infant Israel has to kill off. It ha- what has to die is the part yeah. of Israel that is not able to grow, that is not able to transition, that needed the fetish Moshe, that needed the fetish of the calf, that was unable to suffer the disruption necessary to individuate and to grow and to tolerate the fact that they will not be in union with God. That's not possible. God's already told us. You can't see me and live. So you can't union with, you can't. And they already said, like, Moshe, you go talk to God. You go deal with God. We we can't handle it, right? So, but part of that personality of baby Israel has to die. And the fetish never really ends. I mean, look at the concern with Moses. I have one little piece I'm not understanding. If Moses just one, <laughs> well, yeah, just one. <laughs> we'll start. Um, if Moses taking the um, the calf and grinding it up, making them drink it, that's being a really bad mother. That's taking away the transitional object. That's taking away. I don't. I, how, how does that piece? Fit because in? it's wrong. It's a pathological it's relationship to a. Fetish. It's not a security blanket that's helpful or good. Yeah. It is a bad one. But but he's just given them nothing in return. We don't have the Mishkan yet. So he's gonna he brought them Mm. the commandments. That's what they're supposed to focus on. 
Right, because he's pissed off. Well, not not because he's pissed off. I don't believe he breaks them because he's pissed off. I don't believe that. I believe what he did was he tore up the contract. They were under the chuppah. God and Israel, or I like to see it as adoption. God is adopting Israel as God's own child. God is signing the adoption papers, and they're crying mama to ISIS. So Moshe tears up the adoption papers, or the... Ketubah, however you want to look at it. He's only enacting what has already happened. The people blew it. And so he's going to go get another set. But that was what they were supposed to transition using was a new way to understand a relationship to divinity, not the one from Egypt. But it's also the next step of Moses stepping back and not being the important person in people's lives. He's not going to go with them, and he's now already... He's going to be with them for 40 more years. Yeah. And he stays the leader, and what does God finally learn about this this infant? (laughs) This infant's not going to make it. This one's not going to live. This child is not going to survive. Um, So, But I want to go to the one more thing about the grinding. Ilana Pardes suggests that that grinding and making them drink it is all about weaning. They are being... They are reacting to being weaned, right? So if we're talking about the suckling calf, their anxiety is represented by the abandoned suckling calf that wants the breast. And God is saying, you're getting too big for the breast. You are a free, you are a free people now. Your teeth are coming in. Ow. And like you, you need to transition off the breast and they Resist. They're furious, which is what happens. We know, you know, the, the infant is furious when the breast goes away, particularly around weaning. It's hugely anxiety producing. And she suggests Moshe is saying, you want the milk? Here you go. You may drink it. There's, there's weaning and then there's cold. How bad is it? Is it possible that the reason why um, it's ground up and they, they're forced to drink it or told to drink it is to, to make them sick or to, to, make them die like it's like poison. I don't think they die from it the plague and the levites took care of that um, make them sick drinking this they all die but but I think the people left drink it I think it's a lesson you want something to cry about yeah this is what you have a union it's literally part of you <laughs> you you wanted you yeah. wanted to be involved with that fine the, yeah the powder now the calf is in you you want right all right now now it's part of you. You got what you wanted. Remember when they complain about not having meat? What does God say? Do you remember? And there's two meat stories, but in one of them, what does God say? I'll give you meat. How much meat? Too much. How do we know? What does the text say? Till it's coming out of your nostrils. That's what the text, right? That's, that's what this is. All right, Rick, you wanted to say something? No, I was just saying there's a difference between weaning and cold turkey down your throat. Okay, so that might say more about God than, right, about the people, to your point, Rick. Like, maybe God is not such an experienced parent. Yeah, it it seems like the the people, this newborn, they're they're making mistakes and learning from them. Like, is that is that so unexpected and so terrible? You know, that's that's development. Until it's not. Until they can't. So. They're forgiven. Right. God forgives them. 
now. Good. Because maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe God understands, yeah, God right? Understands. As a new parent, God is trying to figure this out. And God forgives them and gives them a second set of tablets. Okay. Let's look at our final uh, commentary by Rabbi Shefa Gold to where David was going earlier. The only way to understand the first text, it's your first text. The only way to understand the sin of the golden calves, says Rabbi Shefa Gold, is to compare it to the Mishkan. For the building of the Mishkan is the context for this story. The main difference, and I love this about Shef, I love this point. I, I taught it last night. The main difference is that the Mishkan exists for the space within it. It is a structure that is built to send us to that holy innerness. All of its beauty, color, and design are dedicated as a nexus point between the human and divine, between heaven and earth. The important part is not the outer form, but what's inside, right? What, what's important is what's in the Holy of Holies. What's in the Holy of Holies? People? The tablets, the teaching about how to live. The important part is not the outer form, but what's inside. So the Mishkan is a physical representation of the actual relationship. That is where God speaks, is inside. The further within you get, the more holy is the space. That's the Mishkan. The further in you get, the holier the space. That's exactly how the Mishkan's designed. In contrast, the golden calf is solid, existing of and for itself. So you have gold that's on the inside of the ark. Do you remember this? The ark is lined with gold plating. What is the calf covered in? Gold plating. It is the same thing. The exact same thing. But that beautiful gold is supposed to delineate empty space in which exists instruction about how to live. The calf is the opposite. It is gold filled with wood or whatever. No, isn't it, I'm, I'm stuck on what you said, the, the torn up ketubah. So isn't it interesting that they keep the torn up contract and the, and the, and the good contract both, you know, like if you you think they'd throw out the the torn up the, the the violation, but I guess maybe that that sort of biassociative sense of of keeping both is I don't know what to make of it except that it's interesting. Well, you wouldn't you throw out the t- torn up pieces? Yes, unless what? But may, maybe maybe the two things coexist. Maybe it's like you never really banish one and completely endorse the other, but maybe they're kind of in tension. Even, I don't know, I don't know what to make of that. That's exactly what the rabbis say. That's exactly what the rabbis say. They are always in tension because we are human. We are never going to be whole. We are never not going to screw up. But if the pieces are there next to the second set, oh, sorry, um, if the pieces are there next to the whole set, it reminds us that forgiveness is possible. Tshuva is possible. We are always going to be broken. Always. But in the ark are both. The ways we screw up and disappoint ourselves and each other and the ways that we sometimes every now and then get it right. That is supposed to be both are holy, say the, the rabbis. Yeah, All right, let, me, let, me, let me finish this. Let me finish this. Hang on. 
The calf has no interior space, which is the antithesis of the Mishkan. It glorifies itself. It is literally full of itself. It represents the most dangerous hindrance in the life of spiritual practice, that of worshiping and staying attached to the forms rather than allowing those forms to send us to the essence that they might point towards. Betsy, this is some of the conversation I've been having with you and David. It's idolatry to worship the forms and not what they're supposed to be pointing towards, is what Shefa's arguing. This is a spiritual challenge of Kitisa. How can I dedicate my life to spiritual practice without turning the forms of my practice into an idol? The difference between a building a mishkan or a golden calf is sometimes very subtle. I remember going to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association conference. So it's a bunch of rabbis. And here comes morning davening. And I, I'm, oh, I'm going to be late to davening. I have to get my, you know, clothes on, my shoes on, and my Tallis bag. Where's my Tallis bag? At home. It never made it into the suitcase. And I have to tell you, I flipped for about three minutes. I spun. I'm going to be in a room with a bunch of rabbis, and I don't have a Tallis. I was this close to not going to Shachrit, to not going to services. This close. Why? Because we become attached to the forms. And I said, Amy, really? Really? Your davening is dependent on a piece of cloth with some fringes on it? Really? Wow. How deep is that practice? Right? Not very. Get off your tush and go to services. But it was hard. Because we have a tendency to, to glom onto the form instead of what it's supposed to be leading us to, which is fill in the blank, being more compassionate, forgiving, patient, self-loving, other loving, <laughs> right? Um, open, repentant, all those things. The, the opposite of stiff necked. So, uh, so I, I love the fact that and that comes both before and after this incident because right now we are living in a world where a Birkin bag is more important, right, than just about – and just it's just sick. Like our relationship to stuff is exactly what Chef is talking about here, I think, one of the things she's talking about. The materialism, the status hungriness, the more, 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 that is the golden calf. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.